welcome to another episode of Students Talk Security. My name is Lauren Pizella and I'm a sophomore at Notre Dame and a fellow of the Notre Dame International Security Program. For today's episode, we have a very special guest, Professor Ernesto Verdeja. Professor Verdeja is an Associate Professor of Political Science and Peace Studies here at Notre Dame. He is the author of Unchopping a Tree, Reconciliation in the Aftermath of Political Violence, and is the co-editor of various volumes on peace building and social movements. He received his PhD and MA in political science from the New School for Social Research in New York City. He has worked on human rights at the International Center for Transitional Justice and the Lawyers Committee for Human Rights. He has also served on the advisory board of the International Association of Genocide Scholars and the U.S. Institute of Peace's Resolve Research Advisory Group. Currently, Professor Verdeja is working on a book project on comparative genocide as well as co-directing a project mapping state security force structures around the world. He currently serves as the executive director of the Institute for the Study of Genocide. Professor Verdeja regularly consults with the US government, foreign governments, and other human rights organizations on genocide and mass atrocity prevention. Professor Verdeja, welcome to the series. Thank you so much for having me, Lauren. It's a real pleasure. Thank you. To start off, I wanted to ask if you could provide a brief overview of what mass atrocities are. What's the difference between a mass atrocity and a genocide? What are the triggers and what can we do to prevent them? Okay, so that's a, that's a bunch of really big questions, right? And a, a lot of people are working on this and continue to work on this. I think the easiest way to think of it is that mass atrocities include really severe and sustained violations against civilian populations. So really, really grave human rights violations. And in international uh, policy and peacebuilding work, we tend to think of mass atrocities as including kind of four classes of large scale violations. So one is genocide, which I'll say something about in a moment. The other one is crimes against humanity, which is also a crime under international law. The third is war crimes. And the fourth is a category referred to as ethnic cleansing, which technically is not a violation of international law, but all of its elements are folded into other types of, of crimes of international law. So what do we mean by that? Um, I'll start with, I'll leave genocide for, for the end. Uh, what we mean by this is basically crimes against humanity referred to large scale, sustained, coordinated, or kind of continuing attacks against civilian populations. So large scale murder, enslavement, torture, the uh, forced removal of people from their land, things like that. Uh, crimes Against Humanity is pretty well settled. It's been around for a long period of time. There are slightly different formulations of it, but the International Criminal Court, for instance, has a definition of it that's used pretty extensively. It's close to the standard right now. Uh, a second type of mass atrocity includes war crimes. And war crimes actually have historically kind of the oldest roots of crimes of international law when it comes to human rights violations. War crimes involve the violations of the laws of war. So this includes, for instance, um, harming prisoners of war. It includes attacking civilian population areas in the conduct of war when it has no military purpose. So say the bombing of cities, if it has no strategic purpose, um, the, the violence and targeting and killing of civilians during conditions of war when it has no military purpose, torture, things like that. Uh, ethnic cleansing basically refers to the forced removal of people from their land, usually through terror and other types of violence, including mass killing, um, slaughtering people, etc. And the term ethnic cleansing comes from the, the wars in the former Yugoslavia of the early 1990s. 
when a number of perpetrators would use that term against their victims. So it's kind of been reappropriated. But ethnic cleansing really almost always constitutes a form of war crime and or crimes against humanity. And then lastly, genocide, which is what you let off with. And genocide refers to the intentional destruction of groups. Uh, there's an international legal definition, which is the intentional destruction of a group in whole or in part. The group is an ethnic group, a racial group, a religious group, or a national group. And there's a whole bunch of different ways by which this can happen. But the short version of it is that what genocide means is it means the targeting of groups for the destruction of a group as such. So it's not just mass killing. It's not just killing a lot of people. It's not just harming a lot of people. But it's about the targeting of groups based on their collective identity. So you're trying to destroy the group. So the Holocaust is probably the best known example of this. Um, the treatment of many indigenous groups in the Americas, another good example. But there's actually a lot of genocides. And almost always genocides happen in the context of other mass atrocities. Great. And what do you advise that people do to prevent them government-wise? Well, so this is, so I'm a, a scholar of genocide um, and I work on the prevention of genocide. And as you mentioned in the introductory remarks, I also do some consulting work on this. Um, to be honest with you, I think that by the time we get to the point where genocide is occurring, where we know that genocide is happening, it's usually too late. So my most obvious piece of advice, my most straightforward piece of advice is don't try to prevent genocide. What you're trying to do is prevent large-scale human suffering. Why is that? Because again, genocide refers to the intentional destruction of groups, which means that you have to know that the intention is there. You have to know that the perpetrators are intending to destroy the group as such. They're not just trying to repress the group or clamp down the group, but they're actually trying to exterminate it. Um, and by the time you have pretty good evidence that this is happening, it's usually a bit too late. Having said that, what do we do for the, pro for the prevention of these types of crimes? Well, in order to understand how to prevent them, we have to know what their causes are, right? And we know um, in general what a lot of the main features, the main driving factors of genocide and related forms of crimes are. So we know, first of all, genocide and related forms of crimes tend to happen under regimes that are not democratic, not fully democratic. So authoritarian, partially authoritarian, that's because governments don't do a very good job at accountability. So they use violence already. They're, they're comfortable with using violence to dominate civilian populations. So regime type is important. So one solution is to try to democratize that country and to encourage democratization of that society. Um, we also know that often it happens with political leaders who espouse really radical ideologies. Ideologies that are not only divisive, I mean, divisive ideology, political ideologies exist everywhere, but ideologies that really are about systematically dehumanizing vulnerable populations. So think about how in Europe there was this uh, Nazism, right, that systematically dehumanized Jews. It treated Jewish people as not fully human. Um, in the United States, we've had this with the treatment of indigenous peoples historically. Uh, you see this in a lot of other cases. In Rwanda with the treatment of the Tutsi, or in Bosnia and Herzegovina with the treatment of Muslims. So focusing on ideology is really important and trying to counter those types of extremist ideologies. We also know that um, genocide tends to happen under conditions already of enormous instability and insecurity. It doesn't just happen willy-nilly. Uh, political leaders who are genocidal tend to settle on genocide once other techniques have been tried and have been found to be insufficient. In the Holocaust, for instance, the Nazis focused first on stripping um, Jewish civilians of their civil and political rights, of their jobs, 
trying to force him to flee the country, stealing all their property, obviously killing and abusing them as well. But the Holocaust really emerged once the Nazis felt that that was insufficient for their ends, which was a Jewish free Europe. So they started focusing more and more on extermination. So the point in all of this is that we have to be very sensitive to crisis moments where political leaders become even more radicalized and end up choosing a kind of a, an even more extremist so-called solution to this, to this problem that they feel they have. Never really a problem, right? These are genocidal <laughs> perpetrators. Um, but the point is we need to think about crisis and we need to think about how to forestall really severe crises, political instability, coups, particularly war, which tends to be a good context for genocide. Great. And how would we look at the crisis in Myanmar? How would you advise like a peace building process there? Just to provide some background to listeners who may not be aware of what's going on in Myanmar. Uh, Professor Verdeha, if you'd like to add on to this background information. Uh, but since 2017, the Myanmar army has aimed to ethnically cleanse the Rohingya Muslim community out of the Buddhist majority nation. So they have been deemed as illegal immigrants from Bangladesh. They've been denied their citizenship and then been forced to flee Myanmar. And my question is, you know, is it too late or can we start to pursue a peace building process there? And what would that look like? Well, so it's never too late. This is a really important point. Um, it's never too late. It's just that the longer you wait, the much more difficult it is to actually have an intervention that has a strong and deep impact, right? It's a little bit like uh, if you think of a house catching on fire, it's one thing to try to build a house that doesn't have a lot of elements, a lot of dry wood, and there's kindling everywhere, etc. You don't build a house in a way that's prone to fire. But once it catches on fire, it's harder to save the house, but nevertheless, you still have to try to put it out, right? So with Myanmar, what we have right now is an ongoing fire. It's been ongoing at least since 2017, depending on how you kind of want to define it. But there's a long history of the repression and the marginalization of the Rohingya minority, as you mentioned. So how do we address it? This is a really, really hard question. It's a hard question for a number of reasons. Um, one, because the government of Myanmar has partly democratized or opened up over the past several years. Uh, it was a military dictatorship for a long time. It was kind of a pariah state. Its only real supporter was China. And for a long period of time, the government of Myanmar, which is this kind of right-wing nationalist, xenophobic government under military, was carrying out insurgent or counterinsurgency efforts against all of these different ethnic groups all around the country, right? So this was just one region. It was happening kind of all over the country. There's some pretty, pretty violent ones. Over time, as it started democratizing, kind of opening up a little bit, um, there have been attempts at trying to bring ceasefires to some of these insurgencies. But what's happened with the case of the Rohingya is that you essentially have a population that historically has never really been considered fully Burmese or fully part of the country of Myanmar. They've never really been considered um, members of the country. They're considered to be foreigners, even though they've been there for hundreds of years and it's well established. In 2017, this kind of history of systematic repression and marginalization against the Rohingya hit a boiling point. And the, the military has carried out a kind of so-called counterinsurgency campaign that has effectively been considered genocidal by many observers. So a large number of Rohingya civilians have been kind of forced to flee into neighboring Bangladesh. Um, and there's still all sorts of atrocities going on. Even today, as we speak, on September the 10th in 2020, 
just a few days ago, there was video testimony of Myanmar soldiers basically uh, admitting to the fact that they were told kill and exterminate every Rohingya you come across. Women, children, doesn't matter. So it's just broke recently, but it's part of an ongoing pattern. So what do we do about it? Um, it's difficult, right? You're not gonna have a military intervention by foreign countries to step in. Those things have bad track records anyways, and it would be at this point impossible to kind of put together. So that's not gonna happen. What you need to do is focus on the pressure points of the government of Myanmar. And one of the most important pressure points is the support from China. China's a major supporter. So the trick is basically to find out what are the leverage points, what are the ways in which the government of Myanmar can be pressured through its main supporter, China, in order to dial back or basically even stop um, this kind of treatment of the Rohingya. That's an immediate first step. It's something that's sustained and has to be done. And it cannot only be done by the United States. Um, the United States, as you well know, has all sorts of credibility problems around the world in terms of international politics. Uh, which have become you know, much worse under the presidency of Trump. Um, but in any case, it's, it's hard for the United States to pull something off like this right now. So what's needed is a sustained international effort of regional powers, countries in Southeast Asia, um, to do this, as well as the support of the United Nations. But there have to be carrots for China as well. That's really kind of one of the most important things that can be done. In addition to this, there have to be more sustained efforts at developing kind of humanitarian corridors and humanitarian assistance for the Rohingya population, both inside neighboring Bangladesh, where they are in international camps, um, but also within the country of Myanmar. And this is really, really tricky and hard to do. Um, but it has to be, it, there has to be a push for it, right? This is really, really crucial. So those are kind of two important elements. And there also have to be international efforts to mediate between the armed forces of Myanmar and the insurgent, there's a small insurgent group um, that is primarily Rohingya. Uh, there have to be efforts there to mediate on that in order to reduce the security threat that the Myanmar government perceives. But this is hard stuff. I mean, the, the level of ideological animosity and um, dehumanization towards the Rohingya is very, very profound. It has a long history. And unfortunately, even the, the most important civilian leader of the country of Myanmar um, Aung San Suu Kyi, who won the Nobel Peace Prize several years ago, uh, doesn't even recognize the Rohingya as um, really Myanmar citizens. So she's kind of involved with a lot of this as well, and it's a real problem. Um, I, I will say just one thing that has happened recently that's kind of interesting is that the country of Ghana, I'm sorry, not Ghana, uh, the Gambia, in Africa has brought a court case against Myanmar for the treatment of Muslims. Um, and this has gone to the International Court of Justice and it's kind of been litigated there. So basically that Muslims who are, you know, Rohingya are, are um, primarily Muslim, um, that their rights are not being protected. So there's some movement in international law, but that's only going to get you so far. It's really a diplomatic effort through coercion. Right. And would something like that almost worsen tensions within the country? Well, that's always a possibility, right? Um, so this is the problem with... Or, this is one of the challenges with peacebuilding work, that in order for peacebuilding efforts to move beyond minimal ceasefires, that is, put the guns down, stop killing each other, in order to get a real kind of transformation in social relations, you often have to address the root causes of violence. And addressing root causes of violence makes a lot of people upset because some people benefit from the status quo, some people benefit from conditions of dominating others, and you're basically bringing this to the table and saying this has to change. 
So yeah, it can worsen conditions if it's not well thought out. Um, what does this mean? It means that one, you have to, of course, leverage, you know, put that leverage on China and get China to leverage um, its influence on Myanmar. But two, it also means laying out very concretely what has to happen in order to change and what's, what will change in terms of sanctions, in terms of threats, um, et cetera, on the country of Myanmar. So what effectively what you're trying to do is you're trying to bargain, right? You're essentially saying, um, we need you to uh, stop carrying out this counterinsurgency campaign that is, that is carrying out all of these assassinations and murders and, and, and you know, these savage massacres. These are the things that if you do X, Y, and Z, we will ratchet down the sanctions by one, two, and three. That's how you're trying to do it. So you're trying to um, effectively create mechanisms of negotiation where you can kind of create these spaces that incentivizes the government of Myanmar to scale down its, uh, its violence. So in other words, you can't simply have an objective that says uh, you need to radically democratize the country because there's no incentive to do that. You need to have a whole bunch of steps in between. And some of these have to have very strong, very concrete no-go zones. Uh, this involves, for instance, obviously the continued genocidal campaign, right? There have to be accountability measures, et cetera. But at the heart of peace building, it's really at the heart of much diplomacy, but especially peace building work, there are always gonna be ethical dilemmas. There are dilemmas between your normative or ethical goals and the practical constraints that you face. So you're always working within these conditions of limited options. Um, this is known to any of our colleagues in the international relations faculty at ENDIS. Uh, this is the nature of international diplomacy around violence and also the peace studies. Great, thank you for your insight. Uh, my next question is about your work consulting with governments and non-government organizations. I wanted to ask you what some of the biggest challenges were that you faced, if you see, if you had seen a lot of overlaps and if there were any big lessons that you learned through that work. Yeah, these are all fantastic questions, uh, Lauren. Um, and uh, in fact, I'm working on a, a co-edited book with a couple of colleagues, not at Notre Dame, elsewhere, that's looking at ethical dilemmas that kind of continuously come up in the context of peace building and activism work. Um, some of it involving this kind of, of mass atrocity prevention, genocide prevention. Uh, and again, I say ethical dilemmas because what makes a dilemma distinct from a problem is a problem normally has a solution to it. A dilemma is something that by the constitution of the situation, there's no best answer, right? Everything's a trade-off. Um, so having said that, you know, what are some of the, uh, the, the challenges that come up here? Well, most of the work I've done, I'm a scholar. Uh, there are people who are scholar practitioners, that is people who are involved in a combination of scholarship and also practice. So they're involved in peace work, policy work, formulating policy, et cetera. And there are people who are largely just practitioners. Think of people who work at the State Department or in think tanks or things like that. So there's a kind of a continuum here. I'm very much a scholar who does occasional um, and kind of ongoing consultation with the practitioner community. But I say this just to kind of be clear about where I stand in, in this constellation. Um, I think, you know, the work I've done on mass atrocity prevention and peace building has largely been to help policymakers and practitioners think about what are the main drivers for mass atrocities and what are the various paths that this stuff can unfold by, right? In other words, if you were to do policy X, Y, and Z, what outcomes are you likely to generate out of that? And what outcomes are you not likely to generate out of all of that? This is all probabilistic. It's, you, you never know with certainty until you try it. 
But I normally try to help out thinking kind of with the big pictures. You know, we know the causes of genocide are these. We know that these are important triggers or accelerants for genocide. We know that there are a number of restraints or ways to kind of minimize the level of instability and anxiety and threat. Um, so I try to give kind of a perspective on that. Um, and this work has involved working directly with parts of the, of the US government. Um, I've done some stuff separately on the Truth Commission with the country of Colombia, which has been coming out of a, uh, a historic conflict with insurgent groups, and they set up a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So I helped them out with a, a policy report on that. Um, but most of the work has been on this prevention. And what you find almost always is that you have kind of a cluster of different types of challenges. One set of challenges is basically knowing what's happening, right? So as a consultant, you find this consistently. You think of some of the high profile cases that are going on right now, or at least some of the cases that should be high profile, but aren't. Take the country of Cameroon. A lot of violence happening in Cameroon. It's not in the New York Times, it's not in the Washington Post. We don't get a lot of information as to what's happening in Cameroon right now, but we know that there's a lot of political violence, mostly driven by the government um, against the English minority, but not exclusively by the government. Uh, so as a peace builder and as, as helping the policy community, you're trying to give them a sense of, these are the things you should be worried about. These are the things you should be kind of keeping an eye out for. But one cluster of problems is getting good quality information. In other words, as a consultant, as a practitioner, as a policymaker, you're asking yourself, is the information coming out of the country of Cameroon or Syria or Central African Republic or Burundi, whatever, is this information um, timely? Is it one, is it timely? Two, is it representative of what's going on? Is it information that's only coming out of urban areas but not rural areas? So I don't know what's happening there. Is it highly biased? Is it not biased? Who's it coming from? So one is getting good information, that's one. A second problem is coordinating. Um, how do you coordinate all of the different actors, say within the US government, to formulate a cohesive and long-term plan? So who are the different actors? How do you bring them together? Uh, the US government under the presidency of Obama set up a thing called the Atrocities Prevention Board, which was an effort at coordinating all of these different entities within the US government. The international, you know, the um, intelligence community, the Defense Department, State Department, USAID, et cetera, all coming together to talk about what are the high profile cases we should be concerned about and how do we coordinate and leverage our information so everyone knows what's happening. So that's the second problem, coordination. And then the third problem is generating political will or political attention. Uh, there's a lot of problems in the world, right? And Warren and I, you know, you and I could have this conversation. We could have a, a podcast session that goes on for two hours. We can grab a globe, we can spin the globe and say, oh, well, in this country, Cameroon has this problem, Syria has this problem, Afghanistan has this problem. What about Burundi? What about Venezuela? What about, you know, Roraima State in Bolivia or in, um, in Brazil, et cetera? There are a lot of problems out there. So the question then becomes, how do you generate political attention and political will to have change? This is the problem with Myanmar. Myanmar was a big deal in 2017. Today, it's not getting a lot of attention. People are focused on other cases. Yemen is an important one. Um, so generating the political will can be very, very hard in a context where there's so many fires and so many crises occurring. Uh, that's a challenge I've seen consistently. There are ways of getting around it, but you know, policymakers and decision makers only have a limited bandwidth. There's only so much they can do. Right, that makes sense. Um, I wanna transition more to domestic politics and the rise in the far right and nationalism in the US. In one of your more recent articles titled The Short Fuse, Autocrats, Heat Speech, and Political Violence that you co-wrote 
with Bettina Spencer, you write that Trump's role as president validated his violent rhetoric and thereby bolstering his supporters to commit prejudice-fueled violence. With that in mind, I wanted to ask if you thought that if we elected a new president like Joe Biden in the 2020 election, that is so different from President Trump, would we see an end to this rise in the right? Or could this radical change in leadership possibly trigger the mass violence that Trump already validated? Right. That's a fantastic question. So first thing I'll say, make sure you register to vote and vote. <laughs> Regardless of who you're going to vote for. Um, very, very important. Uh, you know, the, the point about President Trump, um, one of the things that social psychology has shown us and sociology has shown us is that when you have environments that are infused by denigrating, dehumanizing, and violent speech, it can enable or it can create um, a positive environment for the commission of, of violence, of acts of violence, right? There's no direct obvious link, unless, of course, the president said, don't kill X, Y, and Z. That's not what's happening here. That's not the case. There's no direct link, but it creates an environment where this is much more likely. And we have a pretty, pretty good research on this. Um, so your question, of course, is about whether the election of Biden, let's say Biden becomes president or wins the election, whether this would be a radical change here. Uh, I think we need to be realistic about what is likely to happen, right? So if Biden is elected president, it's not as if all the problems in the United States are going to be resolved. The country is deeply polarized. Um, at least some, some segments of the population are deeply polarized. It is not going to lead to the erasure or the disappearance of violent right-wing um, groups. And even the FBI has said that kind of the bigger threat comes from the radical right, not from the radical left. At this historical moment, there have been moments when there have been radical left threats. This isn't it. Uh, but it's not just going to disappear overnight. Now, one thing that can be done is uh, political leaders, including Biden on the way down, need to change the kind of rhetoric that is used. There has to be a much, much stronger rhetoric, uh, rhetoric of inclusivity, but inclusivity committed to justice. What you don't want is a kind of rhetoric that talks about, hey, we're all equal, inclusivity, respect, tolerance, but none of the primary drivers of violence, of grievances are addressed. You don't want that kind of situation. So when you have political leaders who say, we just need to go back to the prior status quo, that's probably not good enough because the prior status quo is what has driven much of where we are right now. Whether that's economic and racial injustice, or um, sensitive grievances among other groups, et cetera. But you know, these drivers are there. They're really serious problems that the United States needs to address. So I don't think, to kind of cut to the chase, that electing Biden will somehow solve the problem. However, um, given uh, President Trump's history of using highly divisive language, highly racist language, highly misogynistic, and this is a president who is actively um, uh, talked about sexually assaulting women, right? And he's kind of talked about it, you know, is this something he's kind of proud of as a joke? Uh, he's someone who is consistently trained in bigotry and racism and classism and all these, you know, all these different forms of xenophobia. Um, this kind of language, what it does is it emboldens the most bigoted elements of uh, the radical right. And that's where the problem is, right? It also, one of the problems with, with I think, with President Trump and something that needs to be addressed um, is the erosion of the legitimacy of government and the erosion of legitimacy in the rule of law. So what you have in the present situation is a situation where there's very little respect for the rule of law, right? 
any legal um, outcome, any court case that comes out against the perceived interests of President Trump or against the government is seen directly as a kind of a manipulation of the rule of law. In other words, there's no kind of standard of the rule of law. You see this with his attacks on, on justices, on, on judge, judges, right? He famously um, accused one federal judge of, uh, because his background was Mexican-American, um, that he couldn't possibly be uh, neutral or impartial. So the erosion of a sense of the rule of law is very, very damaging. And this is something that's going to go on well beyond um, Trump's, you know, Trump's uh, stay in the White House. Uh, I think this is actually one of the biggest problems that the country faces, this erosion kind of legitimacy of government, the rule of law. And generally, there's this kind of discourse of paranoia, right? Uh, the QAnon um, phenomenon, I think, is a fascinating one. It has a lot of reverberations with old anti-Semitism, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which you might be familiar with. Um, but this kind of QAnon phenomenon where there's this kind of world conspiracy and it's just everyone's trying to destroy America, it's tied to a kind of a concern of protecting a very conservative white Christian identity um, in the country and concern, you know, with protecting certain kinds of power relations in the United States. But the QAnon conspiracy is really hard to break because of the way it is caught like wildfire in social media. Uh, I have a separate project with um, some colleagues that looks at the use of political means of disinformation connected to um, instability and, and political violence. And uh, we're kind of in the early stages of it. It's using a, a, some really kind of fascinating computational um, systems, but it's very disturbing. And we've, of course, we all know this is from watching the news. Right, right yeah, that's very interesting. Um, we're approaching the end, but I wanted to conclude the episode by asking you what you think we can do, just ordinary people and promoting peace building and bringing that policy attention that you talked about earlier. Um, over the past year, I've noticed that social media has been used as a really great platform to raise awareness and support. However, I feel like it can be detrimental because people mm -hmm. think that posting on Instagram or Facebook with the caption Black Lives Matter is enough and that they've done their part. So do you think social media is still a good platform or we should abandon it? Yeah, that's a great point, right? It's very easy to kind of click on something you support. It's very easy to create Facebook communities where you only listen to people like you, echo chambers. Um, but yeah, you know, you kind of click a Black Lives Matter thing and you're like, hey, I, I support Black Lives. You know? right. uh, that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty low hanging fruit. Um, so to address kind of your first question about the role of social media, I mean, social media in many ways, it can be both positive and both negative, right? It can be both at the same time. That's effectively what it is. Uh, social media can be valuable for spreading information and mobilizing people um, and getting information out from areas that might otherwise not have, uh, you might not hear about. I, for instance, joined Twitter um, originally during the Arab Spring because I wanted to get information kind of coming out of these countries and not having to wait for how it was processed by New York Times and Washington Post and Wall Street Journal, all that stuff. I wanted to kind of see it in, in real time. It's a lot messier, but it was very fascinating. And it was also, in those cases, very important as a way of developing political consciousness um, in those contexts. So social media can be very valuable in some contexts. At the same time, it's particularly ripe for manipulation. And if anything, you know, there was a study that was done a couple of years ago that the, the group of people in the United States, at least, who are most prone to manipulation in social media um, tend to be older users of Facebook. Um, and Twitter, but really Facebook. So not younger people like you who are a little bit more or a lot more socially savvy about the use of social media. Um, 
But you know, these are people who vote. And these are people who sometimes are informed and sometimes misinformed as well. So social media can be valuable, but it's a real challenge because in the United States, of course, we have a long history of uh, First Amendment protections, which is as it should be. You know, the government, we need to be very skeptical of the government stepping in and shaping what kind of information can be shared among civilians and among citizens. So there's a delicate balance here. But I think one of the biggest problems is the fact that our social media is largely concentrated in the hands of just a, a handful of corporations, right? And it's not that these corporations are evil or anything like that, but they're driven by a particular demand, which is to make money. And they develop algorithms that facilitate and encourage the circulation of information, a particular way in which they haven't been very concerned about the, the substance of that information. So we've seen Facebook change a little bit its tune. Um, we've seen Twitter be much more active in calling out political uh, memes and political posts that are highly um, misinformed, that are effectively lies. Again, often focusing on Trump, which is really fascinating. But it took a while for this to kind of happen. So social media can be positive, but it can also have its limitations. I think much more importantly, though, we need to think in a kind of a much broader way. We need to think about just expressions of social solidarity, of commitments to social justice, and think about what the real drivers are. What are the real elements of structural violence? So this is a country that has significant inequality. That equality is racialized in some respects. Um, it has a history of um, lack of access to basic uh, health care, to access to political participation, protection within the judicial system, et cetera. These are core issues that have to be addressed in a really deep and systematic way. And social media isn't the only way to get at that, or even the primary way to get, to get at that. So the short version of it was, what does it mean? It means that civil society has to remain active. People should be involved in civil society mobilization. Mobilize, mobilize, mobilize. Um, you know, there's an old saying that no one has to do everything, but everyone, everyone has to do something, right? And I think that's an important part here. Um, we need to think also about not only working outside of formal politics, but also within formal politics, supporting political leaders and political um, actors who promote actually addressing deep sources of injustice and harm, going beyond kind of the superficial elements of just talking about respect and tolerance and all this stuff, but really addressing kind of the deeper problems in society. Um, and then we have a problem in the United States where uh, the security apparatus, this is what we would call it if we were talking in international relations terms, right? But here we would say the police, because <laughs> we don't like calling our police forces a security apparatus, but that's the generic term for it. Um, that much of it in many places has very little accountability and or has become more militarized. And obviously, uh, policing has become highly racialized as well. It's a long history of being racialized, but it's, it's much, more, much more aware of it today. So there need to be much greater constraints and um, overview in how the security forces are used, how the police is used, but also the entire judicial system, the incarceration system. Uh, to say this is not to say, not to take a particular position on defund the police or anything like that, but to really think systematically about how does the police serve the common good rather than being an agent for um, keeping certain groups marginalized, which is effectively what's happened at least that's been the experience of, of many communities in the United States. Okay, great. Thank you so much for all of your input today and joining me on the Students Talk Security podcast series and for discussing all these critical issues the world is facing today. Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you.
Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.